0: John chapter 8, beginning in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he said these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I dive in, let me mention a few
1: things this morning. Uh, recently, I have recommended this book, Family Worship Bible Guide by Joel Beakey, several times, and every time I mention it, it sells out very quickly. I think we've sold 50 copies of this book in the last couple of weeks. They're back in stock. Um, don't go grab one now. I know you're tempted, uh, but there's, I think there's 10 of these in the bookstore. It's a fantastic resource for family worship. Next is a brand new book. Uh, by Simonetta Carr called Church History. It's uh, not a thick book. Um, church history I find incredibly inspiring. When I read church history, I realize that I am a really, really small drop of water in a massive stream of history. And I find great inspiration from men and women in the past. Uh, This book is well-written, it's short, it's full of pictures. Uh, Many of you have probably read her biographies for kids. Simonetta Carr has written probably 20 little biographies for kids. This is a brand new resource in our bookstore. Uh, I'd highly recommend it. I think you'll be inspired and encouraged to follow Jesus more as a result of this new book. And just to remind you, we lose money on these books. We sell them at a loss because we want you all to read really good books. So um, after the service, go ahead and check out those books in our bookstore couple more quick things. Our youth ministry meets the first three Wednesdays of the month. That's 6th grade to 12th grade here at 7 o'clock on Wednesdays. So no meeting this week since this is the last Wednesday of the month. Furthermore, Veritas, our college ministry, also meets the first three Fridays of the month. Uh, This Friday, they're going bowling. If you want to find out more about Veritas, the college ministry, um, come talk to me afterwards. Well, let's pray once again uh, and ask for God's help as we look at this passage this morning. Father, we humble ourselves before you and ask for help. Lord, we confess that nothing good will happen now as the word is preached unless you move by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would send your spirit now to give each one of us the gift of understanding or to help us to understand and apply uh, these contents to our lives and help us to trust Jesus even more as a result of what we learned this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, as many of you know, was the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. How many of you watched the funeral? Raise your hands, okay? Uh, if you didn't, you're missing out. This funeral was watched by an estimated four billion people worldwide, making it the most watched television event in the history of television, And it's actually a very, very Christ-honoring funeral, because it's from the Book of Common Prayer. But as a result of the queen's funeral, many people are wondering what happened to the queen when she died. Is she in heaven or is she in hell? Well, according to one British news source, we don't have to speculate, the headline says this, Queen Elizabeth is in heaven. This was confirmed today by the sighting of our dear departed Queen Mum in the skies above the royalist market town of Bangui in Suffolk. What was seen in the skies confirming her presence in heaven? A massive cloud in the shape of her head, wearing a hat. Is that proof that the Queen is in heaven? No, but it does raise an important question. What happens to you and I when we die? Do we go to heaven or do we go to hell? And what makes the difference? That brings us to John eight twelve to 20. I'm sorry, 21 to 30. Uh, in this text, Jesus very clearly tells the Pharisees, you will not go to heaven because you do not believe certain things about me. He tells them three times, you will die in your sins and not follow me to heaven. So what is required for you and I to go to heaven? According to this text, according to Jesus, we have to believe some specific things about him to make our way into heaven when we die. Now this text Breaks down into two sections. Uh, The first section is the unbelief of the Pharisees, verses 21 to 24. And the second section is the identity of the Christ, verses 25 to 30. So two points this morning. The unbelief of the Pharisees and the identity of the Christ. So first, the unbelief of the Pharisees. Well, what is the proof of the Pharisees' unbelief? The answer is hostility. With each passing day, the hostility between Jesus and the Pharisees intensifies. Look with me at verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin, and where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus Christ boldly proclaims to the Pharisees that when I die, and rise from there, and then ascend into heaven, to the Father's right hand, that's where I'm going. When I go there, you can't come. You will not be following me to heaven, he says to them. 22, so the Jews said, <laughs> will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, why did they sarcastically bring up the subject of suicide? Because in this particular culture, the Pharisees believe that suicide was a one-way path to hell. So they say, Jesus, we're not gonna follow you because you're gonna kill yourself and go to hell and we're clearly going to heaven because we are really righteous and pious. So you can sense already in these verses the hostility the Pharisees have towards Jesus proving that they do not believe his claims. They are hostile to Jesus. Well, people are still hostile to Jesus today, but it's often much more subtle. People say they believe in Jesus, but the Jesus that they believe in bears little resemblance to the Jesus of Scripture. Their Jesus demands little from his followers, except maybe recycling and creation care. Their Jesus loves and accepts everyone as long as they remain true to themselves. Their Jesus has little to say about sexual ethics. Their Jesus is the best way, but surely not the only way. Their Jesus would never return to judge the world in righteousness. Summary, their Jesus is all lamb and no lion. Now, because they don't worship the real Jesus, they are actually hostile to the real Jesus. Furthermore, their Jesus is shaped in their image, which reminds me of a St. Augustine quote. St. Augustine said this, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe but yourself. Said another way, if you believe what you like about Jesus and reject what you don't like, it is not Jesus you believe in but yourself. So what is the proof of the Pharisees' unbelief at this point? Hostility. They are hostile to the real Jesus. But what is the cause of their unbelief? The answer is blindness. Look with me at verse 23. Jesus said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus is saying, you don't believe my claims. You are hostile to me because you are of this world. And the world in the Gospel of John is this massive evil system controlled by Satan. He's basically saying, because you're of this world, you are blind to my true identity. Uh, St. Paul has a lot to say about this blindness caused by being of the world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Paul writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I've been wearing contacts now for 23 years. I think I'm on my seventh prescription. Without my contacts in, I am legally and functionally blind I can't read without them. I can't play tennis without them. I can't drive without them. I couldn't see any of you without them. Maybe if you're 10 feet in front of me, I could kind of tell if you were a guy or a girl, maybe. Bottom line is, my eyes are getting worse and worse and worse as I age. Aging is not a fun process, unless you're like 15 or 16, Here's the problem with this analogy. Without my contacts in, I can still kind of, sort of see. I mean, I can see shapes and colors, and I can make out bodies and cars. And I think before conversion, we all think, yeah, like, I, I'm, I'm kind of blind, but I can still see a little bit. I mean, I can still, like, see Who Christ is. I mean, I know what he did on the cross. I mean, I'm not like blind, I'm just really nearsighted or farsighted. But the Apostle Paul and Jesus make it very clear that before conversion, we're not just nearsighted or farsighted, we are blind, which means we can't see anything spiritually. Which means that right now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's only because he has been incredibly merciful to you and performed the miracle of regeneration in your heart and given you the ability to see. And if he's done that for you, you should spend all your life in love and wonder and praise. And if you can't see this morning... Ask God to help you see. If you're trying to get your friend to see the glory of Christ, ask God to help your friend see. Ask God to take away the blindness. All of us were just like these blind Pharisees before God in his mercy and grace, healed our blindness and enabled us to see. Back to the Pharisees. What is the proof of their unbelief? Hostility. Hostility. What is the cause of their unbelief, blindness? What is the result of their unbelief, death? Look with me in verse 21 and 24. So he said to them again, I am going away, that is, I am going to heaven, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Three times in this passage, Christ mentions to the Pharisees that you will die in your sins. What does this mean? There's only two ways to die in the Bible. You can die in your sins or you can die in the Lord. Those are the only two options. You can die in your sins or you can die in the Lord. If you die in the Lord... If you die trusting Jesus, all your sins will be forgiven and you will go to heaven. But if you die in your sins, when you die, tragically, you will experience the wrath of God for all eternity. You will not get away with any of your sins. On November 24th, 1971... D.B. Cooper hijacked a Boeing 727 passenger plane flying from Portland to Seattle. He told the pilots that he had a bomb strapped on his body and he demanded $200,000 in ransom, which in today's money is $1.4 million. That's some serious inflation, isn't it? When the the plane landed in Seattle... He demanded all the passengers get off the plane. Then he asked for four parachutes, had the plane refueled, and then he asked the plane to be flown to Mexico City. So as the plane is flying from Seattle to Mexico City, 30 minutes into the flight, he opened the door of the plane, put the stairs down while it's flying, and jumped out of the plane over southwestern Washington with $200,000 in cash, and they never ever found D.B. Cooper. He got away with it. Apparently, he jumped, survived, and he's somewhere on the loose with $200,000 in cash. Now, this particular situation, uh, 51 years later, is the only unsolved case of air piracy in the history of commercial aviation. Now, I think deep down inside, we're all kind of rooting for D.B. Cooper. (laughs) Because he got away with it. He's not going to be punished for his sins, apparently. I think a lot of non-Christians think that they are the spiritual version of D.B. Cooper. They think that when they die, they'll somehow get away with all their sins. But Jesus makes it very clear if you die in your sins, you are not going to heaven. If you die in your sp- sins, you will spend all eternity experiencing judgment for all your evil thoughts, evil deeds and evil motives. The last thing you ever want to do is die in your sins apart from Jesus because no one will be like D.B. Cooper. No one will get away with anything if they die in their sins. Believe in Christ now before you die. Before it's too late, God's grace will not last forever. It is the height of folly to die in your sins. But no one has to. People prepare for all kinds of things. We prepare for retirement. Prepare for our kids to leave the nest. Prepare to get our driver's license. Prepare for our first job. Prepare to go to college. Prepare for grandkids. But many people fail to prepare for the most important event in life, and that is death. And the death rate is still 100%. Everyone, everywhere, will die. It is so good to watch funerals like the Queen's, because it reminds us we're all gonna die someday. That's inevitable. Are you prepared? Well, how can you prepare for death? By believing in Christ. But what specifically do we have to believe about Christ? That brings us to the second point. So first is the unbelief of the Pharisees. Second point is the identity of the Christ. What things do we have to believe about Jesus to avoid dying in our sins? Well... First, the unbelief of the Pharisees. Second, the identity of the Christ. We must believe some specific things. Like what? We must believe, first and foremost, that Jesus is God. Look with me at verse 24 to 25. Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. They say, Jesus, who in the world are you? And he says, the things I've been telling you all along in my public ministry. And and now in the Gospel of John, he's made it very clear numerous times exactly who it is, but they don't want to see because they're blind. Verse 26, I have much to say to you, says Jesus, about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. Jesus says, there is much more that I could say to you about your unbelief and my identity, but the Father is keeping me from saying that right now. Christ is fully submitted to his Father. Then verse 27 and 28. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Now, that last phrase in verse 28 is very important. I'll read it again. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, which was Christ's favorite self-designation, then you will know that I am he. Jesus is very clearly saying, when I have been crucified and risen, then you will know that I am he. Now, lifted up in the Gospel of John is used three times, and every time that phrase lifted up refers to both Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. Christ is saying, if you want evidence that I am God, just wait a little bit, when I'm crucified and when I'm risen, then you will know without a shadow of a doubt. That I am who I claim to be, and my resurrection is proof that I am He. Now, that last phrase, "I am He," is also very important. That word "He" is not in the Greek. He's saying, "Then you will know that I am." Ego, a me. That's an allusion to Exodus three fourteen, where God reveals Himself as the great I am. Remember, He says to Moses, "Moses says, God, what's your name?" And God says to Moses, my name is I am that I am. I am, Yahweh. Christ is clearly saying with these astonishing words in verse 28 that he is equal with the Father in glory and power and the proof of that is his crucifixion and his resurrection. That proves that Jesus is God. back to our text what a claim verse 25 the Pharisees ask Jesus Jesus who are you I can't think of a more relevant question for any of us to ask now there are many thoughts on that question Mormons believe that Jesus is one of many gods Muslims believe that Jesus was merely a great prophet Jews and atheists believe that Jesus was a deranged Galilean who was merely a man Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was the first of a the first being created by God, not equal with the Father. Now, every year, Ligonier Ministries polls thousands of Americans to figure out what do Americans believe about Jesus. The results came out last week, and they are very distressing. The people who are surveyed, people who are, surveyed are read a statement. And asked to comment on it. Here's one of the statements that the people are read in this survey. Again, thousands surveyed, very accurate data. Here's the statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43% of self-identified evangelicals, conservative Bible believers, supposedly, 43% 43% of evangelicals agreed with this statement. 30% of evangelicals who attend church once a week agreed with this statement. These are, again, supposedly conservative, Bible believing churchgoers who think that Jesus is a good teacher, but not God. Here's another statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. This is Arianism, a heresy condemned in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. It's also what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. 70% of evangelicals polled agreed with this statement. 66% of evangelicals polled who go to church at least once a week agree with this statement. Wow. Wow. There's going to be lots of shock and surprise on the day of final judgment. When all these churchgoers realized they believed the wrong thing about Jesus. Just because you go to church and claim to be an evangelical does not mean that what you believe about Jesus is orthodox or saving or will get you into heaven Jesus claimed to be God, equal with the Father, not a created being, more than a great teacher, and he backed up that claim by rising from the dead. Now I'm sure that many of you this week, like me, shed a tear when Roger Federer played his last tennis match ever. Was it just me? Okay, okay. This, this, was a, this was a huge deal in the sports world. I'm still getting choked up about it. Roger Federer was such a class act. If you don't know who he is, repent. <laughs> Greatest tennis player of all time. When he retired, that question came up. Who is the GOAT? Is it Federer with 20 grand slams? Is it Rafael Nadal with 21 grand slams? 22, thank you. (laughs) Djokovic had 21. Thank you, John. (laughs) I should have known that. (laughs) I'm off my notes. Djokovic, 21 grand slams. Rafa, 22 grand slams. Federer, 20 grand slams. But there's more to the story than grand slams, in my humble but accurate opinion. When you make a claim like so-and-so is the GOAT, you have to factor in so many other things, like most weeks at number one, most career tournament wins, uh, most prize money, and the most grand slams. So when you say that Rafa or Federer or Djokovic is the GOAT, when you make that claim, you better have evidence to back it up, because that's a pretty audacious claim, isn't it? Jesus is making an incredible claim. He's saying that he is equal with Yahweh. He's saying that he's God. And he's saying you have to believe that to avoid going to hell. What a claim. But he backed up that claim by dying and rising from the grave. As Christians, we don't believe because we lack evidence. We believe because of the evidence. And the evidence here is very clear. Christ rose from the grave, validating this incredible claim. So, the question is simply this. Do you believe Christ's claim? Do you believe that he is who he claimed to be? You must believe that to get into heaven. But believing that is not enough. You've got to believe more than that. Let's keep reading. We must believe that Jesus Christ is God. In addition, we must believe that Jesus Christ saves. Look with me again at verses 28 to 29. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for, amazing statement, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, these verses indirectly get at a couple of the key components of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Theologians talk about how we have to believe in both Christ's active and his passive obedience. What is his passive obedience? It's seen in the phrase, when Christ was lifted up. Again, that phrase in John's Gospel refers to both Christ's death and his resurrection. Why is it called passive obedience? Not because Christ was ever passive. That word passive comes from the Latin word passion, which is the word for suffering. This refers to Christ's death on the cross. God the Father motivated by extravagant love for you and me sent his only son to earth to suffer and die on the cross in our place. And because he died in our place, the guilt of all of our sins, past, present, future, thought, word, indeed, all that guilt was placed on Jesus, on the cross, and he suffered and died for you, ensuring that if you're trusting in him, you will no longer be considered guilty. But that's not enough for you to be saved. As wonderful as that is, Christ's passive obedience removes the guilt. But, in to, get, but to get into heaven, you also have to be seen as a perfect, righteous law keeper. Does that mean we're in big trouble? No, because Jesus says, amazingly in verse 29, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus, every single second of his life, always obeyed the Father, never sinned always did the things he was supposed to do, always said the right thing, always thought the right thing, was always purely motivated. He was perfect. He was earning for you and I a perfect record of law keeping. You and I are only saved through both the life and the death of Jesus. We need both. His death removes all of the guilt of all of our sins, and his life gives us a perfect record of righteousness. We need both his active and his passive obedience. We need forgiveness, and we need righteousness, and Jesus Christ gives us both, and both those things come to us freely by grace. There is nothing you have to do to earn this. All you have to do is believe in that moment. You are clothed in Christ's perfect, spotless righteousness. J. Gresham Machen was the founder of Westminster Seminary and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. As he lay dying of pneumonia in his bed on January 1st, 1937, he sent a telegram to his good friend John Murray, also a Professor at Westminster Seminary, and in that telegram, he repeated the grounds of his assurance. The telegram simply read this, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. I wonder what you're gonna be thinking on your deathbed. J. Grish and Machen was very aware of his need, not just for the death of Christ, but for the life of Christ. He was aware of the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life and all that perfection was given to him. So on his deathbed, he said, I am so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ, for the righteousness of Christ. No hope without it when you and I are on our deathbeds, it's not gonna matter how much money we made in this life, how high we climbed the corporate ladder, how big our house was, how many cars we drove. All that's gonna matter is that you are robed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that comes to us freely, freely, through the perfect life that he lived. Now it's not enough to believe that Jesus Christ is God or to understand his active and passive obedience. You must personally cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need both your active and your passive obedience. I receive it by faith. And by faith alone. Back to where we started. The queen died last week. Which raised the question. Is she in heaven? If she is. It has nothing to do. With how well she ruled. How much money she gave away. How often she went to church. How much she read her bible. None of that matters. All that matters. Is simply this. Did she believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, equal with the Father? And did she believe that Jesus saves? And was she personally trusting in Jesus? And side note, it seems like she was. Praise God. There's good evidence that she had a relationship with Jesus. She was trusting in Jesus you must each answer those three questions before you die. Is Jesus God? Can Jesus save? Am I personally trusting in him? Let me quote, close with this quote by R.C. Sproul. A person who has no faith remains in sin and the worst calamity that could ever befall a human being is to die in that state. But for those who die in faith, there'll be eternal blessing. Let's pray together.